God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 25 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, among, along with the scribes, were mocking him among, uh, among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the insult at him. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone, fi- someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. We'll turn now to Psalm 89, beginning in verse 1. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite, I will sing of the loving kindness of Yahweh forever. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens thou wilt establish thy faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. In the heavens will praise thy wonders, O Yahweh, thy faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like thee, O mighty Yahweh? Thy faithfulness also surrounds thee. Thou dost rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. Thou thyself didst crush Rahab like one who is slain. Thou didst scatter thine enemies with thy mighty arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. The world and all it contains, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at thy name. Thou hast a strong arm, thy hand is mighty, thy right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. 
How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Yahweh, they walk in the light of thy countenance. In thy name they rejoice all the day. And by thy righteousness they are exalted. For thou art the glory of their, thou art the glory of their strength. And by thy favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to Yahweh, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Once thou didst speak in the vision of thy godly ones, and did say, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict afflict him but I shall crush him uh, I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him and my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him and in my name his horn will be exalted I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers he will cry to me thou art my father my God and the rock of my salvation I also shall make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. In his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Selah. Now, if you would turn to the back of your bulletin, we'll read together as a congregation the remainder of Psalm 89, beginning in verse 38. Psalm 89, verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected... You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you have created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is the steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, 
with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we continue, let us sing together, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The homeschool co-op associated with in Plano, at the end of the year at graduation, always sings, Great is Thy Faithfulness, reminding us how faithful God had been all year, and we just want to reflect that in our graduation ceremony. We here at West County, did I say West County? We here at McKinney Bible Church have that same joy of looking back in faithfulness what God did for us in 2020, and we'll do so in 21. I'm sorry, go ahead. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changes not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have is faithful. And I know your faithfulness is in question these days among those calling themselves evangelicals. So we pray that you would encourage us, make us steadfast, and keep us as we hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> the first thing I want you to do, this is an exercise, and you can all see each other so we'll know who's cheating. I want you to close your Bibles. I want you to turn your iPads upside down and your phones, whatever you're using to read the Bible, I don't want you to look at it. What I want you to do is listen. And I want you to remember the Bible was written to be heard, not so much to be read. We're used to that today, the reading of God's word, and we have a great privilege. But you have to think about in Moses' day, in Jesus' day, most everyone was illiterate. So all the nuancing and studying and arguing, it couldn't be done. They didn't have a text in front of them. They heard. And so James says, don't be hearers only. He didn't say don't be readers because they weren't readers. Don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word. I want you to listen. See if you can follow, make any sense of it because hearing is unique from reading. I'm going to read a prayer. It's from the Bible. And it's going to talk about the pit and Sheol and the grave and darkness and the deep and death. All these words are essentially synonyms in this prayer. So you have to envision someone dying and their body being put under the ground where it's dark 
It's the nether world, and we don't know that much about it. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am accounted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like slain, like slain that lie in the grain, a grave, excuse me, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me abhorrent. I am shut up so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through your afflictions. Every day I call upon you, O Yahweh. I spread out my hand to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Another word for the grave. Are your wonders known in darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, but I, but I, O Lord, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Yahweh, why do you cast me away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffered your afflictions. I am helpless. Your wrath has your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful terror destroys me. They surround me like the waters. They close me in like a flood. You have caused my lover and my friends to hate me. My companions are darkness. It's called the most awful psalm of the Psalter. It's called the psalm that has no hope. There's no resolution in the psalm. 
It's someone who says, I know who it is, I'm not going to tell you yet. It's someone who says, you've afflicted me from my youth. We Americans have the idea that life is supposed to be good and wonderful and that we can resolve most of our problems, we can live to 70 or 80 or beyond, be in good health, make a decent wage, have a family. And of course, that's the way most of us have lived. We know little about suffering. This man knows about suffering. We're not told what the suffering is. It may be something physical. It may be something mental. What he's concerned about, it may be a metaphor. And the idea is that God is far away from him. It's like being dead. He doesn't answer. He calls every day. He stretches out his hands, pleading with the Lord, and no answer comes. No resolution in the psalm. No hope. There's a book written by John of the Cross called The Darkness of the Soul. And it's a book that uh, talks about God being absent. It, I said it wrong. It's the dark night of the soul. It talks about God being absent. And how God brings these periods into people's lives, sometimes for a long time, sometimes for a short time, where you feel dry, you feel dead, you know something's wrong, you're not happy. And you cry out to God, and nothing, nothing happens. Why does God do that? Well, some would say, well, God does that because you're stupid. Because there really isn't a God. Some people look at this psalm and they say, oh, it just goes to show. We don't know anything. We only think we know. This God who says he's kind and gracious, look, <coughs> for a whole lifetime, he does not answer the psalmist. And it's easy to get the impression from all that we've been saying with this new temple that's going to be built and the glory of the Lord's going to come and dwell in the temple. He's going to put his name there. And Solomon's going to dedicate it and say, whenever somebody looks to the temple and prays, hear and listen and answer. If they've sinned and they confess and look towards the temple where your name is, hear and listen and answer. And we saw in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, the musicians were set up in the song that's sung that uh, starts in verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 16, goes all the way down to verse 36, and it's all positive. Thanks be to God. Praise his name. Look at how he wonderfully keeps us and watches over us, just like the call to worship. Yahweh never slumbers or sleeps, but in experience, sometimes Yahweh does slumber and sleep. There's no resolution. And some people will say, well, as Job's friend said, well, it's because of your sin Yahweh doesn't answer. It's because of your sin he's brought this affliction. But we know that's not always true. And yet, there's silence. Why? Well, 
I was afraid that if I pushed on in Chronicles, people here or people of listening who are troubled in spirit, troubled in soul, questioning right now things about themselves, things about God, things about the Bible, things about sin they've committed, things about forgiveness, and feeling a sense of, this doesn't work. I was afraid if I pressed on, I would discourage them. And I don't want them to be discouraged. This psalmist clearly is discouraged. There's no resolution. It comes in three parts. One part's about death. One part's about praise. And one part's about fear. These days, it's not much in the evangelical church to fear God. We belittle him. We question him. We want to make him into what we want him to be. There's not a sense that this God can oh, cause trouble for us, cause affliction for us, really make life difficult. We live in a time where we don't think any of that comes from Yahweh. No, we say, oh, I got cancer, and we know the reasons why it came. Oh, I got diabetes, and we know the reasons why it came. Or, oh, I got this or that, and we factor God out every time. We don't have that kind of fear of Yahweh. We don't think when we come to the table, you know, I better be careful. In Corinth, some people got sick, some people got weak, and some people died. You see, we as Christians today are involved just as much in a scientific world as unbelievers. We think science has the answer for everything. Well, we're living at a crucial, crucial time in evangelical uh, life. Back in the early 1900s, liberalism set into our seminaries and things changed. And now we're seeing a similar thing happen once again. It's the same old problems dressed up in new clothes, but the times are different because now we live with the internet and social media and everybody's an expert because you can Google it and you can find out the truth. And so it, what's pervaded our land now are all kinds of conspiracy theories because you can listen to somebody or find them on the web and, you, and nobody can prove any of it, but we live by it. We make decisions by things because we're experts instead of saying, wait a minute. The Lord said, the one who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. He's your shade on your right hand. The moon, uh, the sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. We need to come back to a robust fear and trust in the Lord and acceptance of his word. We need to remember science is in progress. Science doesn't have all the answers. 100 years from now, science will not look the same then as it does today. 
but God's word never changes. And here's... look and remember who it was. Turn, take your Bible now. Now I'll let you take it. And turn to Psalm 88. Haman, Heman, the Ezrathite. Psalm 89 is Ethan. If you remember, these two men are in First Chronicles. They're in the Singer's Guild. One of them is ahead of a whole choir. Psalm 88 is bleak. Psalm 89, as we read, is all positive, and then at the end it turns bleak. Why have you forsaken your anointing? Why don't you come and revive us? Well, God didn't from 586 B.C. to 30 A.D. That prayer was not answered. How much time do you have? That's a problem in some of the Psalms because, you know, our lifespan is such and we want an answer in our lifespan and sometimes there is no answer. But notice, I didn't read you the whole psalm. I read you everything but a couple of verses. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 88. O Yahweh God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Then look at verse 2. See, it says, let my prayer come before you. Then look down at verse 9. Every day... I call upon you, O Yahweh. I spread my hands out to you. And then look down at verse, I'm looking for it, verse 13. He says, but I, O Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So notice, it's, it's one, two, three division. So you're the God of my salvation. Now, listen to me. Now I call on you. Now I cry to you. And as you look, the sections, you know, they have similarities in them, but you can see in section one that goes from verse three to verse nine A, the emphasis is on God's giving him over to death. He's going to die. And then verses nine B through 12, he's asking questions. We'll look at that in a minute. And then verses 13 through 18. Again, death is there and troubles, but he's afraid. It's, it's terrors. It's like, it's like, you know, you get the sentence of death from the doctor. And now you've got to face your mortality in a way you've never faced it before. And there's no escaping. I'm shut in and I cannot escape. Now the time has come. There's no solution. That's where this man is. Now, we're going to come back to that. I read a very, 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 very disturbing book this week. Get the point? This disturbing book was written by a seminary professor at a very conservative seminary. 
I'm looking for where this is, at a very conservative seminary who was dismissed after 10 years in, I don't remember, 2009 or 2010. More than, the, the largest percentage of the faculty wanted to keep him, but the board of directors dismissed him. And it was over some things he'd been teaching there already for 10 years. And one of them had to do with his explanation of inerrancy. He's written a lot of books. Uh, I'm sure you can figure out who it is if you know anything. If you don't know anything, come and ask me and I'll tell you. I don't want, really want you to know. But he, he, has a, he has a blog, he has a podcast, he has books. And in his blog, <clears throat> he put up there one day for people to post to his blog and to his, his, uh, his people. This is what he wrote. What are one or, or two, what are one or two of the biggest obstacles to uh, you staying in Christianity? What are those roadblocks you just keep thinking about and can't get around. Here's what he got. These are the things he got, five of them. He, he just gave the, the top five. The Bible portrays God as violent, reactive, vengeful, bloodthirsty, immoral, mean, and petty. These are from people who claim to be Christians. Number two, the Bible and science collide on so many things to think that the Bible has anything to say to us today about the big questions of life. Whoa. Number three. In the face of injustice and heinous suffering in the world, God seems disinterested or unable to do anything about it. Number four. In our shrinking world, it is very difficult to hold on to any notion that Christianity is the only way to God. Number five. Christians treat each other so badly and in such a harmful ways that it calls into question wh whether there is a God. You hear those? That's old news. But they're alive and well today, once again, in quote-unquote Christian circles. 
These five categories, he says, strike me as exactly right, at least. They match up with my experience. And I'd put good money on it that they resonate with all kinds of people. All five categories have one big thing in common. Faith in God no longer makes sense to me. Do you hear that? Well, I won't read you all the rest, but this man is uh, questioning Genesis 1 through 11. He thinks it's inerrant, but he thinks it's a myth. Now, if you question Genesis 1 through 11 and you say it's a myth, it's just made up story, then how do you deal with Hebrews 11 about Noah and Enoch? If it's a myth, how do you deal with Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and, and, and 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul talks about Adam? If it's just a myth, if it's just a myth, how can Jesus say to the Pharisees questioning him, as God created the male and female in the beginning and said, you know, stick together, how can, you, how can Jesus be right? But of course, this man, along with many others, think Jesus is human. That's correct, he is human. But humanity means you make mistakes that aren't sins, you forget your keys. And so Jesus was the same thing. He had to learn obedience, so he had to learn. And so some of the things he said were just wrong. He didn't know yet. Now, what's important about this? What's important about this is this is where our kids go to college. What's important about this is this is what our kids listen to on the Internet. These are the podcasts. These are the blogs that are classified as Christian. Well, the problem is, of course, we all do have questions, don't we? Some of us are, you know, aren't as worried about things as some others are. But I know that I've talked to people over the years here who are worried about things. Now, if your Bible's not open, I want to come back to uh, Psalm 88 once again. I, by the way, read not from the New American Standard, as is my custom, but from the ESV. And I want you to notice in verse 1 again, O Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And I just want you to know that word, that expression, God of my salvation. Is there no hope in this psalm? Of course there is. That's what the prayers are all about. Where else do you go? What else do you turn to if you don't turn to the God of my salvation? Now, when he's talking about salvation here, of course, he's not talking about the Christ, the cross, but that would be included in this term widely through the Bible. He's just talking about being delivered from the troubles he's in. But who's going to save him out of these troubles? Is science? No, science isn't going to save him. Only God can save him. That's why he cries out in three prayers, one detailing this picture. My life is like being dead. You've forgotten me. 
Don't you hear me? He's pleading with God to listen. Then I want you to notice, look down at verse 9b. 9b. Every day I call upon you, O Yahweh, I spread out my hands to you. Now, there's the word cry for prayer a couple of times. Here he uses the word call. And call just means you can call on the name of the Lord. And that is what he's doing. And in just a second, we're going to read this little section because it's important. But this word call also is a word that means to proclaim. So when Abraham set up an altar and called on the name of Yahweh, or the name of the Lord, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. In other words, he put up an altar in Shechem, and and people come, and he tells them about his God. So look at verse 9b. Every day I call upon you, O Yahweh, I spread out my hands to you. So he is crying out. But there's a double-fold meaning here. Look at what he says then in 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? In other words, I do. I call on your name. I spread out my hands every day. Well, of course, I'm looking for help, but I'm also talking about you, calling on you. I praise you. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in heaven? I declare it. I proclaim your name. I'm calling on you for help as one who proclaims your name. Are your wonders known in the darkness? I know your wonders or your, uh, or your, uh, or your, lost my place, righteousness in the land of forgetfulness, forgetfulness being a place of the the grave. People go to the grave and and we forget them, don't we? My father died, let's see, when I, the first year I went off to college, which would have been 1973. I hardly ever think of him. My mother died in 2005, coming up on 16 years. It's rare that I think of him. Sometimes I dream about my father. Sometimes I dream about my mother. Sometimes I wish my father and mother were here. But mostly, I don't think about them. And that's what he's saying. Is your righteousness declared down there in the forgetful area where people go to be forgotten? I haven't forgotten you. I call on your name, Yahweh. I spread out my hands to you. You're the God of my salvation. If we listen to the bloggers, if we listen to the podcasters, if we listen to the questioners, they think they have the answer. In fact, this man says, you know, doctrinal clarity is not important. What we just need to do is trust Christ. Well, you know, that, that, that statement has some truth to it. Because think of it this way. you got this whole country of churches. And let's just take 
evangelical churches who proclaim the cross. Among evangelical churches who proclaim the cross, some of them hold to credo-baptism, some of them hold to infant baptism, which during the Reformation caused people to put one another to death. Now, are those two doctrines crucial? No. Well, yeah, because we want the truth. But both groups of people who trust Christ are going to heaven. But he's saying doctrinal clarity is not. Well, how can you trust a God that you can't say, well, this is the way this God is. I trust him because my Bible tells me Yahweh acts like this. Yahweh is full of loving kindness. Well, how do you know Yahweh is full of loving kindness? Well, my Bible says, oh, well, you know, but some of us think he's mean and vindictive. You see, doctrinal clarity is important. But on another sense, once we're in the circle of the committed Christians, well, this circle, if the whole circle died at once, would be with the Lord immediately. This circle, if the Lord came today, they would be with the Lord immediately, even though they have all kinds of doctrinal differences and questions that are important, but they're not crucial. But these bloggers, these book writers, these questioners, just the way you hear them talk. Yeah, I, I think this all, this, this all it resonates with me, these five points. What one common thing do they have? They have that, you know, I don't know if faith in God is important anymore. Well, the man goes on to say, well, the one thing you can do is trust God. You've got to trust God. Well, trust God for what? If Jesus could be wrong in some of the things he said, then how can I trust him that what he said about salvation is correct? So I just want you to notice this psalm. This psalmist has all kinds of questions for God. He, he cannot figure it out because this God says, will you call, I'll answer. It's about this God that David says to Solomon, seek him. He will let you find him. This guy's seeking. No, no, he's not finding him. But the one thing this psalmist believes is that there is salvation in Yahweh. Not in Hinduism. Not in Islam. Not in Buddhism. Not in science not in mankind, not based on good works. Salvation is only to be found in Yahweh. And of course, that can only be the case because you know Yahweh means I am. His attribute is the attribute of aseity, self-existence. He was, he is, he is to come. He is the I am. There was nothing. He was and there was nothing. Then he created and it is now. And when he goes to judging and things are destroyed, he still will be and he will make all things new. Science doesn't have that power. Presidents don't have that power. 
Only God has that power. And I want us to buckle down and say, okay, wait, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust Yahweh. And there are three things I'm going to look to in trusting him. One is I'm going to take his word and I'm not going to be afraid to read from book to book to book. I'm going to trust his word. I'm going to hear it and I'm going to believe it. And where I struggle, I'm going to ask God for answers. Maybe he'll give me some. Second is I'm going to come to his table. Because this table is set up as a table of a sacrifice. The sacrifice happened 2,000 years ago. And just like with Israelites who ate the sacrifice, it nourished them physically. This nourishes us spiritually. I'm going to come to the table. And thirdly, I'm going to congregate myself with believers for discipline. Thinking of discipline now, here it does have a corrective side where people can say, no, 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 wait a minute, you're out of line. But a discipline side in the sense that we gather around the right people and we're pushed in the right direction, that's discipline. Like a father and mother push their children to mature, a congregation pushes its people to mature, that's what I'm going to do. lest we find ourselves in trouble. There are doctrines that are difficult. The clarity is not there, not for lack of what God does, but for lack of our problem. We're human beings with finite minds and, and we're given to what we want. And so we look at doctrines certain times by the way we want them to be. We're all subject to those sorts of things. But I want to remind you, the Bible has warning after warning after warning after warning about not falling away from the faith. So we say, and rightly so, those that truly belong to Christ will never fall away. He holds them fast. But still we're warned. Why? Well, it happens to all kinds of people who said they were Christians and they trusted in Christ alone and then they fell away. That happens. How do you know it won't happen to one of us? Well, we can go back to our doctrine and we can say, well, once saved, always saved. You can't fall away. That's a true statement. How did some fall away? Oh, they're just, they never really believed. Okay, fine. How do you know that you really believe? I'm not trying to question anyone's salvation. I'm just trying to say the Bible warns us. And so we must hold fast. Christ will hold us fast. God will hold us fast. But the warning's there. And it's a little bit trite to just say, well, it's people who never believed. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying a true believer can fall away. So this man says, Yahweh, I cry to you, the God of my salvation. Can you think your way through the New Testament? Matthew says, you call his name Jesus because he will save his people 
from their sins. The paralytics let down through the roof in Mark chapter 2. And Jesus says, your faith has made you, your faith saved you. Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells us that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. The gospel of John is the gospel of salvation, of eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting trust. Acts chapter 2 tells us there's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. 1 Corinthians, all over the place, but in chapter 15, which we like to quote, it's talking about salvation and the gospel. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And the whole chapter is not about initial faith. It's about the completion of that salvation when our enemy, the enemy that Psalm 88 is talking about, I've been counted with those who go down to the pit. You put me into the depths of the deep. The last enemy, our enemy, the enemy that separates us from loved ones, the enemy that destroys plans, the enemy that took Hyde's friend from his wife and three kids last week in a car wreck. The last enemy is death. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved from that death. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith that not as, a, not as a result of works. It is the gift of the God lest anyone should boast for we are his poem. His working out. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 1 Timothy is a trustworthy statement that God saves sinners. I'm chief among them. Titus, salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to do such and such. Everywhere you look in the Bible, it's salvation, salvation, salvation. Now, mind you, these words have meanings. I'm just using them in their broadest sense. So when you think of Paul and you think of the word salvation, he's not talking about justification by the word salvation. They're two different words. Salvation means to be brought back to wholeness and completeness, and we have been saved, and we are being saved. And when Jesus comes back in the new Zion, in the heavenly Zion, and sets down on earth, and heaven and earth are joined forever, salvation will be complete. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness. All that stuff will disappear. Salvation's everywhere. So, the psalmist, like happens to so many, many Christians in the world, they live a life of pain and misery. Sometimes not because they're Christians, except in the sense that God is their father and God chooses this life for them like he chose it for Job. You go to third world countries, they don't have the expectations. They can't have the expectations that we have. And so we're kind of on our 
high horse when we think, oh, yes, well, God doesn't answer the way I want him to, so I don't know if I can really believe in that God or not. No. You take Jesus for what he says. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am. In other words, Jesus' name in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Jesus' human name in the New Testament is Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And this psalmist knows that. You're the God of my salvation. Well, some people get the American dream life. They go through life as a believer with not a lot of problems. Some people come introspectively, and they create their own problems. You know, you know what I think. There are two kinds of people, broadly speaking. Introspective people and people that are happy to be. And people that are happy to be, you know, trouble comes, it just kind of rolls off their back like a duck. And people are introspective, you know, they mold it over and think about it, and they get a little gloomy and a little depressed and a little, you know, all that kind of stuff. And when you get married, you, you, you don't want, you want one happy to be and one introspective. If they're both happy to be, you can't really ever deal with, you know, essential deep root things. Uh, but if you're both introspective, my goodness, a struggle in life. So, you know, I have a personality test for that when you want to get married. That's a joke. Some people have a hard life. And we don't know the reasons why. But we trust Yahweh. He knows why. Job didn't know for a long time. I don't know if Job ever knew in the end why he was tested. Did he know it was a battle with Satan? I don't know the answer to that. He may not have known. There's all kinds of cosmic stuff going on, and you and I are the servants of the Lord to be used by him how he sees fit. And in the end, if we're faithful, it will redound to his glory and it will be to our benefit. So I'm cautioning you. I'm the guy who likes books. I like to read. I like to hand you books. Some books, well, you're teetering on the edge. If you're worried, you don't think things through well, they could tip you over the edge. I would caution you about those. Well, I've said my piece. I want to conclude with this. Now, I want to remind us, because of last week and then just listening to the psalmist here, your wrath has overwhelmed me. It rolls over me. Pushes me down. God does have wrath. But God is a gracious God. And he has forgiveness. And a 
doesn't matter what we've done. There is no unforgivable sin. And we don't need to forgive ourselves. That is just crazy thinking. We need forgiveness from those we've sinned against. And all our sin is against God, so we need forgiveness from him. And when God says you are forgiven, friends, we're free. When your friend says to you, or your wife, or your child, or your parent, you're forgiven. You are free. All you're left with is wrestling with the guilt. Why did I do that? But you are free. So when the psalmist is talking to God about his wrath, this man knows Yahweh God is my salvation. So we don't know if he committed a sin. It seems as though he thinks he might have because God's wrath is riding over him. So when you think about the Psalter, when's the last time you sang Psalm 88? It's just not what we turn to. Every other psalm that is a lament has an explicit statement of hope. This psalm has no explicit statement, but there it is right in its opening. Ah, I cry to you, Yahweh God, the God of my salvation. This is our God. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, we pray that you would protect us, that we would trust you, protect us from those who would want to undermine the way we think about your word, protect us from those who thinks man's thinking is greater and superior to your word, protect us from those who think science does your word in, we know better. And we have one fantastic proof. Nay, two. Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus changed my life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.